Hi, I'm John O'Brien, host of Money and Wealth on the Black Effect Podcast Network. I'm an entrepreneur and a businessman. Now, every Thursday, my newest venture is educating you on how to win financially. Even better, I'm going to teach it in a way that, well, you can understand. I'm going to meet you where you are and take you where you need to be. We all might have different starting points and end goals, but as long as we have the desire to acquire financial freedom, it can be done. Listen to Money and Wealth with John Hope Bryant every Thursday on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, what's up? It's your boy, Jerry Clark, and I am the host of Storytime with Legendary Jerry Podcast. For the last 30 years, I have worked with some of your favorite artists like Outkast, Killer Mike, Jeezy, Akon, Jermaine Dupri, and so many, many more. Storytime with Legendary Jerry is an ode to the South. Southern rap has had the game on lock for years, and now I'm telling you legendary stories of how we did it. Listen to Storytime with Legendary Jerry on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any curiosity about finance, at some point you are going to encounter Andrew Ross Sorkin. He created the Deal Book column for the New York Times. And he hosts Squawk Box on CNBC with Joe Kernan and Becky Quick. It's a lively business talk show that got even livelier this spring when Sorkin and Kernan got heated over the impact of the coronavirus pandemic. Andrew Ross Sorkin also created the hit cable series Billions. And he's a guest on this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast. I, I don't get to welcome many friends onto the show, but uh, I'm going to call Andrew Ross Sorkin a friend. Welcome to the show. Well, I'm a, I'm a proud friend, and I'm, I'm proud to be your friend, and I'm thrilled for you. So congratulations on your new program, and it's a thrill for me to be a part of it. So thank you. No, not at all. It's, um, you know, I love these conversations, and I think a little bit about the people who I wanted to have on, and you're someone who I wanted to have on from the beginning for lots of reasons, but I realized as you were starting to come on, I don't think I know as much of your backstory as maybe I think I do. And so maybe I'm going to uh, start there. Like, how did you get into journalism and why business journalism to begin with? Well, I, as like everything in life, this was not the plan at all. I never wanted to be a journalist. I never wanted to be a writer. Uh, I always found writing and even to this day find it hard. You know, I think we all have visions of, you know, Michael Lewis playing the keyboard, uh, playing the keyboard like a piano. Uh, I still uh, hunt and I peck at the at the at the keyboard. I, I've never it's never gotten easier for me. Um, I always wanted to be in media somehow. I actually wanted to be on the business side of media. That was maybe more like you. I think that's why I, I've caught into you so much. I've always I've been attracted to all the things you're doing and, and trying to understand how you're. I mean, you're you're doing so, so many things with Ozzy that uh, when I was 15 years old, I started a sports magazine. I was fascinated by sports, but it really wasn't sports that interested me. It was selling advertising to kids, if you can believe that, because <laughs> I was distributing a magazine inside schools. And so my mother would drive me around to either local merchants down in New York City 
and I would go and try to sell full page ads in this magazine. And uh, I used to read a guy named Stuart Elliott, who was the advertising columnist for the New York Times every day. It was like, religious for me. Uh, you know, some people read the front page or the sports page. I went to see what Stuart had to say so I could talk about advertising uh, with whomever I was trying to sell my ads to. And, um, you know, when I was a senior in high school, I wrote him a letter saying I wanted to come work for him uh, for five weeks for free, literally Xerox staple. I had no intention of putting two words together, let alone a sentence at all. And uh, I go and we have lunch together. He told me there was no way I could get an internship there. I was too young, wasn't going to work. And I somehow persuaded him to let me show up every day. I'd show up at, not on the rolls. I wasn't, it wasn't even official to be there. Uh, I would get a, a visitor pass every morning and I'd stand next to him. I didn't even have a desk. Greatest job in my life, by the way. Third week I'm there, a woman who has no idea how old I am. I'm wearing a suit with a, with a tie on, trying to look like I, I'm you know, I'm supposed to be there. She overhears me talking about this thing called the internet. Now this is 1995, back when we would write the word modem, comma, a device that transmits data over a phone line, just to contextualize what was going on. And she assigns me a story. And I go back to Stuart and I explain to him that I was assigned this story. And he looks at me and he says, you know, you're in effing high school. You can't, you can't do this. And we went and we had pizza for lunch. I'll never forget. And somebody convinced him, just let me try. And so I did. And um, I remember I showed the article to my mother. I showed the article to Stuart, uh, both of whom helped fix it up. And they ran the story the next Monday. And that was the beginning of my business journalism career. So I owe a lot to Stuart. I owe a lot to a woman named Felicity Barringer who didn't know what the story was with me. And then we told her. Um, and I think we were a little worried when we told her because uh, I think Stuart thought I might get kicked out of the building and then he might get kicked out too. I, I love that story. Wait, now what was the article about? So the article was actually about modems because I was talking about modems at that time, about why modems, they used to have a column. Um, oh goodness, I can't even remember what it was called now. It was sort of like why, I called it the Seinfeld questions of the computer age. And the question for that week was why do modems make that crazy noise? You remember that, 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 that daffy duck gargling kind of noise. Right. And um, I knew what it was. It, actually, they're sort of mating sounds. I was no internet genius or geek. I just was of the age using this stuff. I used to go on bulletin boards and all, all, all that kind of stuff. So that's the history to it. Uh, I went off to college. Again, I thought I'd graduate. My dad was a lawyer. My mother was a playwright. I thought I'd go be a lawyer or, or go to business school. I, again, wanted to be a business entrepreneur or, a, or an entrepreneur in the media business space. And when I graduated from college, uh, the New York, I thought I'd maybe go be become a consultant for a couple of years as everybody does and then go off to business school. And the New York Times offered me a role to go to London and cover mergers and acquisitions. And in many ways, I thought it would be sort of like, not like being a consultant, but I thought I'd learn about a lot of different industries. I'd meet a lot of interesting people do it for a couple of years, then maybe go to business school and then figure it out. And of course, I never left. So here we are. And, and did you ever come close to leaving? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, in my mind, probably. My wife would say that I never really did. Uh, you know, the New York Times, my heart uh, is still very much my home and my heart is there uh, with the Salzburger family. And I love them very, very much. They gave me, a, a, you know, an opportunity when I had no business doing this, obviously. And so uh, I, I flirted a couple times, but never, uh, never, never really went to seal the deal. 
And I ask that because I also know a lot of consultants who also have been really close to the action. Uh, folks at McKinsey who were there early helping Larry and Sergey out at Google or, you know, who sat down with a young Mark Zuckerberg and had a chance to come in and join early on. And, you know, every now and then they go and do it, Sheryl Sandberg, right? But right. more often than not, uh, uh, they don't. Um, uh, did you ever look at any of those startups, especially during any of the booms that have happened? There were people over the years, I've been blessed, that, that came with different opportunities to do all sorts of things on Wall Street and elsewhere. You know, though, as a journalist, the other part is, you know, I like to think I'm calling balls and strikes. So relationships are a complicated thing. Uh, you want people to respect you and, and you want them to like what you're doing to some degree, but you don't want them to always like what you're doing. So uh, it wasn't so much that people were, were, were lining up at the door to, to pick me off, but there were some, there were some probably good opportunities that, it, you know, I, I'm sure if you look at the bank account later, you would have been happier doing that. But you know what, as I said, I feel, uh, I, I, I feel like in a weird way that I've actually never really worked. That's the best part of that. My job, I know it's called a job and I'm, I'm happy that I, I, that I get paid, but it's in a weird way, as hard work as it can be on certain days, it doesn't feel like work. I don't really feel like I've actually worked that much. I hear very few people say that, but the people who do say that, I think are blessed and get extra energy because you truly love what you were doing. Oh, I wish, I wish everybody, I, I honestly, because I know so many people who are trying to find their passions and that's always such a hard thing to find. And I feel like I somehow found mine and it, you're right, I, I get energy from it. That's why I said, I don't, I don't feel like I worked a day in my life, but I, I mean it genuinely. I wish everybody could have this opportunity to, to do something that they loved every day because it makes waking up and doing it great. Now I'm gonna switch things up. Normally we do our rapid fire at the end of the show, but, but a smart woman on our team said, hey, Let's move it up to the beginning and see what happens. So are you game to uh, to go to the rapid fire up front? Kudos to your producer. I I think the I oftentimes when I do interviews, do the rapid fire at the end. It may very well, we'll see how it works out, but I, it may work out better. <laughs> yeah. All right, you ready? I'm ready. Most impressive CEO you've ever met? Most impressive CEO I've ever met. Well, I got to know him better after being a CEO. He had left, but I'd say the smartest person that I've ever met is 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 Bill Gates. I, I think every time I have an opportunity to talk to Bill Gates, I walk away more impressed than the last time. I, I just think his depth of knowledge, and even I would argue his empathy, which has changed over the years, uh, because he, he could have been a difficult cat 20 years ago, but his sort of sense of humanity over these, especially even in the past couple of years, I think it's been remarkable. And so I, I put him pretty much at or at the top of the list, at, at the top of the list. As someone who's been involved in business journalism up close for 20 plus years in all sorts of different ways, people I'm sure are always curious, where do you put your money? Where do you invest your money? Oh, that's a good question. So for better or worse, probably worse, but maybe better because I might have screwed it up otherwise is I'm not really allowed to invest in individual stocks. So I can't invest in particular companies. So I'm, I'm, I'm out there, you know, in mutual funds, uh, you know, little S&P here, little Dow there. That's pretty much, you know, I, I, it's a little more specialized than that. Maybe it's a NASDAQ. If I was smart, I would have bought some NASDAQ during COVID. But, uh, and I don't really move a lot of money around uh, anyway. So. I wish, sometimes I wish I could, uh, but 
you know, the other the other blessing of this job is you're you're often um, aware of information before it hits the market, and, and because of that, you can't do you know you can't do much. And uh, I take that part pretty seriously. So, uh, where would you put it if you could if you could do anything? If there were no restrictions, no worries, you were out of this game. Where would you put it? Oh goodness. Um, Look, I know that the stocks have been on a tear and a run, but I, I'd be a believer long term. I'd be a believer long term in Amazon. I'd be a believer long term in Facebook. I know people have views about Facebook. I'd probably be a believer in Apple. Um, you know, I might buy some Bitcoin. Not be- I know people think Bitcoin's a crazy, crazy thing to own. I always thought maybe I should just own some just in case, just, just in case it actually does turn into digital gold. Um, that's probably some of the stuff I do, you know, maybe some private equity kinds of stuff in in this environment, because I think we're going to go, unfortunately, I'm worried about the economy and some of the private equity guys, I think are going to, going to clean up. Uh, it's probably unfortunate because it's probably bad for everybody else, but I think they may clean up over the next couple of years if things, uh, turn South because they'll be able to pick off, you know, various businesses and the like. So probably in and around there somehow. And and sorry, with the private equity guys, just to make it clear for everyone else, you're saying they've got loads of cash. Now they can buy existing companies cheaply. Yes. And so as a result of doing that, when prices do go back up, they will have bought low, they can sell high. Exactly. So they've got a lot of cash on the sidelines. To the degree you believe that they're going to be businesses that are going to be challenged over the next, call it 12, 18, 24 months, what have you. They're likely to come in. Some people call them vultures, but in certain cases, you want to be invested with the vulture and and are likely to have what they call a good vintage year. That's what they call it in the business, the vintage. So I imagine people who invested in this vintage will probably do okay. Uh, what would your wife tell us about you that most people don't know? Um, what would she say? Here's what you should know about Andrew that would surprise most people who think they know him. That And it's true, but I think it's what drives me. So and I'll tell it to you. I think that um, that I prop I may come off on TV as confident. Uh, I think anybody who's on TV is supposed to look confident, but that I think that a lot of it's actually insecurity. Um, and I think a lot of people I don't know about it. I don't want to say speak for the whole business, but I think that some of my own insecurities, even from childhood, trying to prove myself is actually what drives me. And so I, I come off, I might even, we might get off this, um, this TV program together and I'll say, you know, I should have done this. 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 I'm always, I'm not trying to live in the past. I do try to live in the future, but I, I am somebody who's, who's always looking at, I'm not glass half empty, but, uh, or, uh, but I am trying to figure out how to always make it better. I think, I don't know if that's a good answer. She probably, she'd probably say he's so I know what it is. She'd say I'm a carboholic, which is true. And then I get all upset with myself because I eat too many carbs and I've been eating too many carbs during COVID. That's what she'd tell you. She'd say a carboholic, but you're a relatively skinny guy, as I recall. Yes, but I'm I'm like a binger, if we're being honest. I I, I either I'll go up a couple pounds and I'll come down. I'm I'm either eating a lot, eating nothing. It's it's like a terrible mental thing. And this TV business will completely screw you up. It really will because if, if you notice that you're, you're eating uh, some, you know, too much, too much pizza, you know it, you can see it on the camera. So yeah, she probably make fun of me for that or something else. I don't know. I, I love it. What's your favorite TV show? 
My favorite TV show, like, of all time? Oh, give me both. Give me all time and, 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 and give me of the moment. I think The Wire and Breaking Bad are probably tip-top for me. The Wire and Breaking Bad would be my two all-time favorite shows. If you haven't watched them, you have more time than, than money at this point. Go watch them. They're the best. You, you got one out of two right. The Wire is the best of all time. The, the Wire's the best. The greatest single season of TV. So this is like yeah. um, going back to your old baseball uh, days, probably. The greatest single season was Homeland Season 1. That's the greatest single season in TV history. Yep. Okay, and, I go and with that. Other, I like other, that. other runners up to The Wire include Mad Men had a nice run. The Americans had the nice run. Yep. And if you stop early enough, Fauda, the first couple of seasons, and Peaky Blinders, the first couple of seasons. In my mind, Breaking Bad's behind all those. Breaking Bad's behind all those. Okay, so I got to catch up on Fauda. The thing, I, every, I don't love subtitles because I'm always trying to multitask and do email and work at the same time, which is terrible. I'm told that Fauda is now, they've redubbed it in this remarkable way that Netflix is now, you know, dubbing a lot of this stuff. So I may have to return to it. Yeah, Fauda kind of went off the rails, so don't watch season three. But the first couple seasons, okay. it's definitely worth your time. Okay. Uh, it's got a little bit of magic. All right, uh, back to the rapid fire. Um, uh, your favorite comedian? Whew. I mean, probably, this is going to, I don't know if it'll age me or not, Eddie Murphy was always my favorite comedian because I grew up watching Eddie Murphy. My parents didn't want me to watch Eddie Murphy, but Eddie Murphy was the guy that I, I watched, you know, I, 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 or too early in my life, probably, because I was too young. It was a rated R movie. First rated R movie I ever saw was Beverly Hills Cop. Nice. So maybe that gives you a sense of, you know, where I was at that point. I love it. I love it. And then sports. Uh, uh, you have a favorite athlete of all time? Do you, do you have a favorite sports uh, team or? I mean, my favorite, look, I'm a New Yorker, so I was, I was a Nick fan. And I tried to hold on as a Nick fan for a very long time. So in many ways, Patrick Ewing would have been my favorite athlete in certain ways, given when I grew up and whatnot. In many ways, it was Jordan, though. I mean, I watched The Last Dance like the rest of the world, and it was the greatest. You know, it was like reliving my childhood. I loved every second of it. I loved Jordan. I loved Pippen. I used, I mean, now I'm going to embarrass myself. Yes, I used to save money and beg my parents to get Jordans. I, at one point, will, uh, got myself a knee brace the black and, and red knee brace where he flipped it. And I used to wear that. I didn't even have bad knees, but I, I didn't just, so yes, that, you know, I was also big, I, I was a big Agassi fan. Uh, I played tennis and I loved Agassi and, and I could never get, my parents would never allow me to get the spandex. Remember the pink spandex under the shorts? I wanted it though. So I, 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 I th- th- these are all good. All right. Um, uh, uh, your last uh, rapid fire for now, and then we'll move to other stuff. What's the best piece of investment advice you've ever gotten? It's such a cliche. It's such a cliche. But when there's, and I hate to say it, when there's blood in the water, when it looks like everything's terrible, you got to buy. You got to buy. Even though it feels terrible, you don't want to do it. And when everything seems great, you got to sell. So, you know, I mean, that's classic advice. The problem is none of us really take it. And 
I wish I, I theoretically, I talk, I talk the talk on TV, but I will tell you the Sorkin family doesn't always take its, take its own advice and it should. If you, what does your wife do? My, my wife is a literary agent. So if you've got, uh, if you got some more books to write in you, you know, she's got 15% to take. I, I love her already. That's great. And how did you guys meet? Give us the, uh, give us the love story. How did you guys come together? I met her when I was 11 years old. She was seven years old. I never saw her again till I was 26 years old and she must've been 21 years old. We had a family friend in common. That's when I met her when I was 11. And I happened to be at the family friend's house on July 4th. Um, obviously, you know, fast forward, what was it? Uh, 10 plus, over a decade later. And she walked in and no one had ever thought to set us up or anything. And we hit it off. She apparently went inside to the kitchen that, that afternoon and told our family friends, uh, the mother, these are my parents, very good friends. I got it in the bag, <laughs> meaning me. So I don't, I don't know. But she, she's, she's, she's gutsy. She's, you know, she's, she's out there. She, we should get her to come on. We're in our house right now, you know. Have which her is come crazy. over and say hello. So, Why not? Either John Legend had Chrissy Teigen come over. Probably upstairs wheeling and dealing. So I, I love it. So, so. Now, why does it work? I can tell it works. Why does it work? Why does it work? It works because I, I've never talked about this on TV like this. When I met her, I felt like I knew her my whole life. I was actually scared of the feeling. I had had other girlfriends and things. I had never met somebody that I felt was like I'd known forever. Like they were just like my, like they were part of my life. It was so crazy. It was the weirdest feeling. I, and as I said, I was scared about it. There's a yin and yang thing. Um, you know, I procrastinate. She's decisive. Um, you know, she definitely takes me down one peg. Uh, she's much smarter than I am uh, about life in many, many ways. And, you know, I don't know. I think we've been very, I hope we've been supportive of each other and each other's careers and lives and kids and everything. But she's just, there's never been a day in my life where I've been you know, you know, the couples who say like, I, I got to get away from them for a day or this, or that. never, never. There's not even a moment. I mean, I, we will get annoyed with each other here and there, but really never. It's crazy. That That's that, that's crazy. Beautiful. Now, now, what did the kids do to the mix? Because you have three kids, right? They make it crazier. Um, I got two boys who are twin boys who are nine years old. They don't look alike. They don't act alike. We're running a, a natural experiment in our house since they were born on the same day. And then I have a, a daughter who's three years old. And um, they, as I said, the boys couldn't be more not alike, which is uh, funny. And, and my daughter basically is my wife. So that's been sort of fascinating to see uh, Minnie, Minnie Pilar. Interesting. And now, are you, are you a different person, do you think? And I'm not looking for a trite answer just because, but, but have the kids changed you, you think, as a person in any meaningful way or more or less Andrew is Andrew? Oh, that's, that's, that's a great question. I'm sure they, I, I'm, I never do the good trite dad answers. I always feel bad because I see these guys on TV who do good trite dad answers. I say, I wish I could say those things. Um, you know, I, with the kids, I feel like, uh, yes, I'll say this, but, but now I'm just speaking of my own, my own problems. I feel like I'm on the couch with you. This is amazing, Carlos. 
Um, you know, with I am, as you can tell, obsessed with my work because I love it. Because I love it. And I think that having having kids changes your perspective about what's important. I do. I do. I, I think that, as I said to you, even like some of like the insecurities that I think drive some of my work, you realize that's sort of stupid in the end because who am I trying to, what am I trying to prove? I'm not trying to, I shouldn't be trying to prove anything to anybody else, maybe to my kids um, or, you know, or, or try to help them be better and be the best people they can be. So I think it's offered me some kind of perspective or I like to think that, but I don't know. I don't know. I, I could I could tell you're a good dad. I got an eye for good moms and dads. I could tell you're a good dad. I, I could I could tell. Um, uh, I'll take um, I'll take whatever I can get. Yeah, I love those guys so much. It's unbelievable. I mean, we all love our kids, but uh, but uh, yeah. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hi, I'm John O'Brien, host of Money and Wealth on the Black Effect Podcast Network. I'm an entrepreneur and a businessman. Some would call a thought leader. Now, every Thursday, my newest venture is educating you on how to win financially. Even better, I'm going to teach it in a way that, well, you can understand. No unexplained theories, no mundane lessons, no using 20 words when two will do. I'm going to meet you where you are and take you where you need to be. I'm giving you straight talk, relatable stories, and life lessons through my own experiences and the lens of others. We're not just talking about why financial freedom is important. We're focusing on how you can achieve it too. We all might have different starting points and end goals, but as long as we have the desire to acquire financial freedom, it can be done from the streets to the suites. Listen to Money and Wealth with John Hope Bryant every Thursday on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, what's up? It's your boy, Jerry Clark, and I am the host of Storytime with Legendary Jerry Podcast. For the last 30 years, I have worked with some of your favorite artists, like Outkast, Killer Mike, Jeezy, Akon, Jermaine Dupri, and so many, many more. Storytime with Legendary Jerry is an ode to the South. Southern rap has had the game on lock for years, and now I'm telling you legendary stories of how we did it. Like Pastor Troy doing the ad-libs for one of Justin Timberlake's biggest hits. Whenever you listen to Cry Me a River, man, I'm all through them ad-libs on that song. It's that one line. 
Walla, cry me a river. Uh-huh. Y'all hear this? Wait, to it, man. And what if I told you Jazzy Faye and CeeLo have an unreleased album just sitting in the vault waiting? Now you and CeeLo had a group for a minute, man. Yeah, we had a whole album in the can. We got a, we have a whole album. Now I have partnered with iHeart Podcast to bring you one of the hottest podcasts in the game, telling you some of the most unheard stories in the music industry. Listen to Storytime with Legendary Jerry on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Turning to work for a second, you and your boy Joe got into it a little bit this spring. Like, how real was that? How natural was that? And, like, where were you in the moment and where were you after the drama? So it was real. And look, Joe and I are totally, it's always real. You know, you've been on the show. Um, no, there's, there's no, uh, no pretending. We, we all say our piece. And in a way, we're like a family. Uh, we're like a family that, you know, it, it has disagreements at the table sometimes. You know, I don't like, I think of myself as somebody who actually can stay very measured. I like being measured. So in many ways, I don't like that confrontation. That's not good for me. But, um, you know, we had it out. And uh, the great part about a family, I think, is that, you know, an hour later, we're on the phone with each other and, and, you know, things are better. And by the next morning, all is good. So, you know, the the great part about our show, and I will say this, and I'm not just blowing smoke. I think it's one of the few shows on TV today where you get different perspectives. I learn from Joe Kern every single day. I learn from Becky too. Uh, let's let's not forget Becky. Becky does a remarkable job keeping the whole the whole thing on the tracks and and oftentimes asking the smartest of the smart questions. But no, I think I think that um, I learn from him every day, and he comes with a perspective, and I come with a perspective, and Becky comes with a perspective, and I think it's real, and I think I hope that that is palpable to the audience. You guys do have a very nice chemistry on the set. You create a nice environment. It's not a, there are environments that you come in, you know, whether it's a store or a business or a, a, a TV show set where it's a little tense, a little on edge. And by the way, as we saw in the last dance, that works for some people, right? right. For Michael Jordan, right. he didn't want the energy to be comfortable. He wanted everybody on edge right. and prepared to win and prepared to take his arch enemies, the Detroit Pistons down, right? But you guys have a, there's a nice energy there. You guys have the ability to welcome people into the house um, pretty well. And I think that that is special. I think about some of those studies about most effective teams and what that looks like and how much collaboration, how much tension, how much ability to critique. I I, I, I like what you guys have. I think you guys have something uh, nice when you step into your arena. Well, thank you. I got to tell you, when they when they came to me probably close to 10 years ago now to do this show, A, it was something I, I, I used to watch this show. So it was amazing to even have the opportunity. Somebody would let you be the host of it. But the chemistry has been a special thing. And, you know, I, I, as I said, sometimes I'm sure it looks like it's off the rails. But on most days, it's 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 it, we're on the track and it's like having breakfast every morning with this remarkable group of people and you just get smarter and uh, I get smarter from Joe and Becky. I get smarter from the guests. It's you know when I said it's it's almost not like a job. I'd love to do it. I mean, don't tell the bosses we're on TV. I, I'd want to go to have breakfast there every day anyway. 
You know, there, there is power to that. May he rest in peace. Kobe had that perspective about basketball, right? That he loved it yeah. so much so that he loved it whether he was getting paid or not, right? That there was a, a certain joy yep. uh, just being out there, that he enjoyed practice, he enjoyed the game, he enjoyed the whole thing. I have a sense that Tom Brady also enjoys it as well, that it's not work. It's not something to figure out how to do one more year, but it's how long can I keep doing this because I love it uh, that much, even if they're running me out of town. So it's uh, it's interesting. 100%. Um, who have you learned the most from? Um, uh, because you get to talk to so many interesting different people, whether it's you're at the New York Times doing what you're doing there, whether you're with CNBC, whether you're creating a show like Billions, you get to talk to such a beautiful array of people. Who are two or three of the people that you've learned the most from and that stay in your head or that you still remember or you still use something that they offered you? Oh, goodness. You know, I've met so many interesting and different people over the years who've helped me with so many different component parts of my career. Uh, when I when I wrote Too Big to Fail, this is now back in 2008, you know, I studied and then had the opportunity to talk to some of the great business book authors. So back then, you know, Michael Lewis, uh, Jim Stewart, who wrote Den of Thieves, which I think is one of the great books. Brian Burroughs, uh, who wrote uh, Barbarians at the Gate, one of my favorites. Um, Kurt Eichenwald, uh, who wrote a book called The Informant. Possibly, by the way, one of the, maybe the most underrated best book business narrative ever. Um, it's about a price fixing scandal, but you don't have to care about it. It's like a John Grisham novel. It's just, it's just beyond, and it's so great in large part because it's about an informant who taped everything. So the, the detail and the description is right off the tapes. It's just so delicious and wonderful. So, you know, I, I've, I learned from them in that context. Um, I would say working with the, the folks, both at Showtime and HBO, when we, when we did Too Big to Fail for... Uh, for HBO, Richard Plepler, who ran that organization, Curtis Hansen, who was our director, uh, you know, Dave Nevins at Showtime, Brian Coppin, Dave Levine, who are our showrunners on Billions, the actors. You, you, you just learn little pieces uh, from everybody. I mean, in the end, I probably have to go back to give the credit to Stuart Elliott at the New York Times, because without Stuart, I don't know, you know, where I'd ultimately be. But there's so many great editors. I can't tell you. Larry and Grassi ran the business section. Glenn Kramer. I mean, I could do like a, I'm not getting an award, but I could, I could do like a thank you session that would go on far too long. Uh, talk to me uh, um, uh, a little bit about the up and comers who you are seeing today. Because we're talking a little bit sometimes about CEOs or about hedge fund managers or Wall Street, but who are the next handful of big names that you think are going to break through and like this is a COO or this is a so-and-so and if I were going to keep my eye on two or three people here would be the folks I'd keep my eye on. Okay I'm going to give you names that you may or may not know I don't know. I'll give you Tasunda Duckett. You know Tasunda? Love her. Love her. Big fan of hers. Say more. Why is she on your list? Tasunda Duckett runs the, uh, the, 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 the consumer business at J.P. Morgan. And I, I saw her speak at something. We actually sat on an airplane next to each other probably three or four years ago, and I didn't know her. And she blew me away. She had people crying in the room, and I thought to myself, whoever she is, something big is going to happen. Uh, Sarah Fryer. I don't know if you know Sarah. Of Sarah course. was the CFO of uh, CFO of Square. She's uh, on the board of Walmart. 
She's now uh, running a, a company called Nextdoor, which is sort of a, a more localized version of Facebook. Very impressive, uh, just beyond impressive. Um, oh goodness, I, I'll keep thinking, I'll keep thinking. Those are those are two big game scores. Tashonda would be at the top of my list as well. So it's interesting that you and I both independently, if we were writing a list, she literally was the person I had in mind. I think she could be the first, I guess she wouldn't be the first uh, at this point, but she'd be the first black woman to head one of the major banks. Um, I mean, I think we, we, we've obviously had uh, Stan O'Neill at Merrill Lynch as a man, and um, didn't a woman just got tabbed to run one of the big banks? Is that right? Which one? Oh, I I am not of the of the big one of the big big banks. I'm not sure which one you're referring. I you know, and now her name's escaping me. The C, the president or COO of Citigroup, so Judy. Um, she's going to become the next CEO of that company. She's she's very impressive. I mean, look, there's I mean, we're blessed with lot. There's lots of impressive people all over. I, I wish I had some some bigger or or not bigger names, just uh, you know people that are going to do something crazy that, that we haven't thought of. Yeah, but the other thing is, you know, we're talking about American companies. I would have a big bet going on like Ant Financial in China. I think Ant Financial is going to take over the world. So uh, Ant Financial is a, a, a Chinese payment company. It's going to be massive, massive beyond any, anything that, that you could imagine. Um, there, there's fascinating people in Europe that are doing remarkable work. So I, I'm going to try to come up with some more names for you, but uh... how how good is your boy Jim Cramer uh, as a as a stock picker and analyst? I know he's good as a TV host. I know there are few people who are more entertaining, who are more in love with what he's doing, who bring the enthusiasm. No, no. Let me say this, and I, I say this about Jim. I'd say this about Jim, whether I was on or off the payroll, doesn't matter. The synapses in that guy's brain are operating at a different speed. They just are. It's not about entertainment. His knowledge, deep knowledge of these companies and the homework that he does is off the charts. You could ask him about a company and some kind of analyst report that came out at three o'clock in the morning that morning. And he he knows it. He knows it cold and he does the homework. And I, I just have a lot, a lot, a lot of admiration for, for, for the work he does. Look, I think it's also, I think it's very hard, as you might imagine, to pick stocks every single day. I think that unto itself is a, is, is a task. So he's not always going to get it right. And I think he does try to make it as entertaining as he can. But, um, but I think he knows his stuff. And, you know, on a relative basis today, this will go viral if I say it, but like, you know, there's this guy, Dave Portnoy. Uh, I don't know if you follow him from Barstool, uh, who's on Twitter every day. You know, telling everybody stocks are going to go up and he's picking random stocks and he's doing this thing and he's entertaining as all get out. I watch it every day. I can't even get over how entertaining he is. It is unbelievable. But I don't but but I think he's gotten lucky and I think he's doing very well, but he's gotten lucky. I think over time, if you were to really stack up what Jim's done, it's something it is. Interesting. All right. I love that. We'll, we'll do the little head to head there. Um, flip to the other side. Uh, thoughtful people. Uh, these days, whether it's AOC, uh, Bernie Sanders, um, even President Clinton at times, uh, Elizabeth Warren, have had some pretty meaningful critiques of our capitalist system. What do you say? What do you say when you see the long lines at food banks, uh, people waiting to get food? You see people with multiple jobs 
still not making ends meet. You see, yesterday we had on uh, the Senate candidate from Kentucky, Charles Booker, who was talking about having to ration insulin and that no one should have to do that. What kind of critiques would you make of capitalism? And maybe more than just critiques, if I made you czar or if Biden or Trump named you to kind of oversee a kind of uber economic post, what two or three big changes would you recommend to them? Okay, so the first thing let me say is I hope that this whole pandemic that we're living through, if there's any lesson in it, it's the value of human beings doing labor, hard labor oftentimes on the front lines who don't get and historically have not gotten the credit or the wealth that they deserve. Full stop. I can't tell you, and I, 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 I hate myself for it. Today, if I walk into a Walmart or a Target, I try to be, not just try to be, I am, because it's just, I can't stop myself, effusive in my thanks to those people who are working there in a way that I didn't a year ago. I didn't, and I should have. So part of me just thinks that there should be an appreciation for labor in a way that there isn't today. And that appreciation shouldn't just be the thanks that I give or that you give, but it should come in the form of money. Now, how that works? Complicated, because you want to raise, you, you, in a perfect world, you'd like to raise minimum wages uh, to some level. Should it be a national level? Should it be state by state? I don't know, but I, but I, I would, I would talk and think about wages. At the same time, I'm very conscious that the economy is in a terrible place, and if you force increased wages right in the midst of a recovery, that's a very complicated thing to do and may actually have the opposite effect. In fact, Hoover tried to do that, you know, after 1929, and you could argue that that actually made things tougher, not better. I think we also have an obligation to rethink the tax code. You've been blessed, I've been blessed, and especially after this pandemic, I oftentimes think to myself, and I've been blessed to actually be able to be work from home. A lot of people can't work from home. Those people who are not working from home, the people who are working at Walmart, working in a hospital, that to me is their contribution to this country during what is the equivalent of a war. The contribution that I can make should come in the form of money. I should be paying, writing a check to the government today because I wasn't on the front line. I got to sit at home. And I think that we all, we all should say thank you. I, I believe that. I know a lot of people say, Andrew, go send your check then. Do it on your own. I think it's going to be broader than that. I do think that we should probably have higher taxes on the wealthiest in America. I don't necessarily believe in a wealth tax, but I do think at death, we need to think about what that really looks like. Um, I think capital gains tax, all the people who are making money during the pandemic, they're making money because they have money. We've got to fix that. Um, that should be taxed at a higher rate. And I don't think it would change the investment picture if we did something like that. I think there's lots of loopholes around real estate investing, private equity investing. That should, we, that should be table stakes. We should just take that off the table and, and, and get rid of those loopholes just because I don't want people to think the system's unfair. Un even if it's not gonna raise a lot of money, which is what you often hear, but it would make people say, okay, the system at least is fair. And then I would do something that probably would be the most controversial, which is I am not convinced, I love philanthropy, and I wanna encourage as much philanthropy as we can, but I think what's happened here 
is you have people, including Warren Buffett, who I have a huge amount of admiration for, and a Bill Gates, uh, who have given their money to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, for example, and are doing wonderful and important work. And by the way, helping us with COVID and everything else, hopefully if they, they, they are able to fund and get a vaccine. But if you think about it, the money that, that, that Bill and Warren are contributing to those causes has never been taxed, ever. Because it came in the form originally of stock and they transferred their stock into a foundation. I would tax the sale of the stock. If you want to sell your stock, pay the capital gains tax, and then go give it away, fabulous. And I, and I hope people do that. And maybe you could come up with a, some kind of middle ground solution where it's taxed at some kind of lesser rate even. But the idea that people are going to go through their entire lives without paying taxes on it at all, even if they're going to give it away, I think makes it very, very difficult because some of the great American titans in this country Therefore, we'll have never really pay taxes. And what it means is that we, those of us who, and I said we are blessed, but most of us will have paid taxes and effectively are subsidizing that philanthropy. That philanthropy can be made and sent wherever it wants to be sent. Most people don't have that opportunity. And so I think we just need to rethink a lot of that. And then finally, it's not just education that needs to be fixed, which does need to be fixed. But I think that we need to figure out a way to help families. I think there are too many families in America. We, we, we have done some great things in schools, and there are some great teachers out there, and we can debate charter schools and unions and all of that. But I think in some, especially low-income communities, I think oftentimes the families don't have the help that they need outside of the school. I think the kids don't have the support structure that they need outside of the school. And I've always thought that there should be some form of volunteer, either a volunteer program or Teach for America style program where we literally send either volunteers or paid, paid helpers to families across the country that need the help. And it could be any type of help. It could be help with homework. It could be, by the way, frankly, help with childcare so that the parent could help with homework. But I think that, that's, that the, so much of America feels so stretched that they can't actually help their kids the way they want to. I think we're actually, a lot of people, uh, even, even those of, uh, you know, with some means during this crazy crisis have realized how stretched they are when they're trying to do work at home and the kids have work to do. And so I think if we could figure out some way to, to, to help families uh, on a very individual basis, it'd be a very expensive thing to do. Uh, but I might get behind that. You, you know who might be available for that is a lot of the retirees. Yes. Who often... Um, aren't engaged and actually lose a lot 100%. of um, um, happiness and intellectual engagement by sitting doing very little. And in a couple of small Italian towns, they actually realize that allowing the retirees to come essentially to be teacher's assistants for third graders ended up being a win for both. And uh, I totally. think that could be a big thing, kind of a late in life kind of teach for America, right? But kind yep. of... Uh, Yep. Retirees for America uh, could end up making okay, a difference. Well, let's do it together. We'll make it happen. I, I, I love that. Be careful. You just That just may happen. Be careful if you say that. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. 
Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hi, I'm John O'Brien, host of Money and Wealth on the Black Effect Podcast Network. I'm an entrepreneur and a businessman. Some would call a thought leader. Now, every Thursday, my newest venture is educating you on how to win financially. Even better, I'm going to teach it in a way that, well, you can understand. No unexplained theories, no mundane lessons, no using 20 words when two will do. I'm going to meet you where you are and take you where you need to be. I'm giving you straight talk, relatable stories, and life lessons through my own experiences and the lens of others. We're not just talking about why financial freedom is important. We're focusing on how you can achieve it too. We all might have different starting points and end goals, but as long as we have the desire to acquire financial freedom, it can be done from the streets to the suites. Listen to Money and Wealth with John Hope Bryant every Thursday on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, what's up? This your boy, Jerry Clark, and I am the host of Storytime with Legendary Jerry Podcast. For the last 30 years, I have worked with some of your favorite artists, like Outkast, Killer Mike, Jeezy, Akon, Jermaine Dupree, and so many, many more. Storytime with Legendary Jerry isn't old to the South. Southern rap has had the game on lock for years, and now I'm telling you legendary stories of how we did it. Like Pastor Troy doing the ad-libs for one of Justin Timberlake's biggest hits. Whenever you listen to Cry Me a River, man, I'm all through them ad-libs on that song. It's that one one Cry Me a River, ah. Y'all hear this, man? to it, man. And what if I told you Jazzy Faye and CeeLo have an unreleased album just sitting in the vault waiting? Now, you and CeeLo had a group for a minute, man. Yeah, we had a whole album in the can. We got a, we have a whole album. Now I have partnered with iHeart Podcast to bring you one of the hottest podcasts in the game, telling you some of the most unheard stories in the music industry. Listen to Storytime with Legendary Jerry on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, I'm going to hit you on a couple other things here. With Black Lives Matter and the conversation that happened, on one hand, some people said, thank God we're having this conversation. Maybe we'll get to a better place. I know a lot of my friends, particularly friends who are black and brown, are saying, man, I want to believe that people are opening their minds and opening their hearts, but I worry that it's a little bit of what I call the Marie Kondo thing, which is kind of everyone does it and talks about it for a week or a month, and then it's kind of back to business as usual. What are you hearing, especially among the titans of industry? Like, it, did anything meaningful happen here? And will anything happen? So I don't know if this is going to be satisfying or totally unsatisfying. I think we're on a journey. And I think that this, I think we are on a, a tipping point along the journey, but there'll be many tipping points. I hope. I hope there'll be more tipping points, frankly. But I think we're on a journey. 
And I think that hopefully uh, what we're going to see over time is that you're going to see the next generation, quote unquote, empower uh, and empowered. I think that's happening. I think it's happening in hiring. Look, I'm, I'm actually involved in some hiring uh, right now. And I think that that the companies that I'm involved in are very focused on this issue. I think you're hearing about you know, NBC Universal, parent company CNBC, put out a 50% diversity target for, for the company. So I think you're going to see a lot of real effort go into this. Um, so I don't believe it's just a press release. I think there's some companies that it's just a it's just boilerplate press release. But again, that's why I said I feel like it's a journey, and it, it's going to take longer than we want it to. It it is, it really is. And but at the same time, I tell you, I don't know as much as I want to rush. Meaning, uh, theoretically, I want to rush as quickly as possible. I I also worry I don't want to rush too much because I also don't want it to backfire, right? I, I want to find that sweet spot, that balance so that we, we get there and we get there the right way. And I, I, think, that, I, th I think there's an opportunity. I, the more CEOs that I talk to at the tops of their, their companies, this has become one of the singular issues uh, that they're focused on, 100%. And, and so what happens when you talk about it on the air? Like, is there fatigue and people don't want to talk about it? Is it something that you found that for a day or for a week, people did want to engage? Like, what happens on the air uh, at Squawk Box when you when you when this certainly came up and when it was part of the conversation, you know when George Floyd w was murdered, and that's what it is. It's, it's all we can call it. Uh, clearly, we had lots of CEOs come on who wanted to talk about it, and maybe there was fatigue about the topic. But it gets embedded in in virtually all the conversations. There is invariably a conversation around diversity and workforce and how this is all going to work in the future. I don't think there's fatigue. I think it's a it's a real uh, it's a real issue, um, and I don't think it's going away. I you know I keep getting emails. I keep getting white papers. I keep, there's just there's constant work being done on this topic. Now you're right. If you remember a year or two ago, the issue was Me Too and gender, and before that, you could argue guns was an issue that all of a sudden corporations were taking on. So yes. There will be other issues that may come and may appear to uh, to be prioritized at a certain point over one or the other. But I think, again, I hope journey. That's what I I tell myself this stuff. I, I don't know. Um, uh, t talk to me a little bit uh, about Trump. I assume covering uh, business as long as you have that you'd bumped into him before he ran for president. Yeah. How well did you know him and, and what do you make? of his presidency so far, whether you want to focus on the economic part or whether you want to think more broadly about his uh, almost four years in office? So I knew him uh, not well. I shouldn't say I knew him well, but obviously uh, living in New York City and covering uh, the business world, I'd been on the phone with him. He was one of those people who'd always take your call. He, he would take the call. And then on Squawk for a while, we used to do a thing back when The Apprentice was on NBC called Trump Tuesdays. And he would call in to the show and talk about whatever was on his mind. He could be talking about the Kardashians uh, or tax policy or whatever was happening. He would, you know, he, he'd call me a socialist invariably. And uh, we, would have, we would have a nice little <laughs> repartee and spar with each other about whatnot. I didn't think, like I, I imagine a lot of people in, in the country, I didn't think he would become the president. Uh, I, I, that was not something that was... Uh, 
something I thought would happen. You know, when you think about the economic record, you could, you could give him a lot of credit. Um, I don't know if you give him the credit. Frankly, I give Obama some of the credit because uh, I think he set, set a lot of this up to some degree. But if it happens on your watch, the good part, when the good part happens on your watch, you get credit. And when the bad part happens on your watch, you, you, you also get credit. Um, I clearly think that the way he's handled COVID has been horrific. Um, I, I, I wish I had a better uh, version of that. It's not, I, I'd say just, I mean, I think this country has, has, has dealt very badly with it. I think we needed to test and we need to test early. And I think just by, def- by saying that testing was not going to be the priority, we just set ourselves so far, so far back. And I, I think that history will, will not look uh, well upon that part of it. Um, as for the economy, I, I'm mixed because, yes, the economy looked great pre-COVID. But, you know, if you spend a lot mo- more money than you really have, you can make a lot of things look pretty good. And I don't think people talk a lot or enough about that. You know, we had these remarkable tax cuts in America and we were spending a lot more than we were taking in. It seems to me that in good times, we got to save some so that when we actually have these bad times, we can deal with it. I think, unfortunately, we are going from bailout to bailout uh, to bailout. And and it's at some point, it's going to catch up with us. It's just got to. I, I wish it wouldn't. But uh, as my, 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 my parents used to say, money does not grow on trees. It really doesn't. Where do you think the economy's headed over the next six months, over the next year or two? What's your expectation? I think it's going to be choppy. Um, my best case scenario is that it's choppy that we get to a a vaccine earlier than maybe is expected or a therapeutic that's earlier than expected and people have confidence to go out and maybe we're we're not at 10% unemployment, maybe we get down to seven or six, but that's still double where we were, you know, just five months ago in terms of what the unemployment picture looks like. I think a lot of small businesses are gonna have a tough time. The worst case scenario is, is much more dire than that. The worst case scenario is you really do have a second wave in the winter all these restaurants that are doing out okay, at least right now, uh, you know, serving people outside and whatnot, that they can't make it, that we don't put in, that we don't put enough stimulus in the system for them to get to the other side, that it takes a lot longer to get uh, a vaccine. That that worries me a lot. Um, but you know, I, I will say this: I was taught many, many years ago that if you're a journalist, to some degree, you have to be a professional skeptic. That's part of the job. So maybe I am glass glass. Uh, half empty. Uh, I wish I wasn't, but uh, but maybe that's part of the gig. I don't know. If you're an investor, by the way, you need to be a professional optimist. You have to be. It'll serve you better to be a professional optimist. If you're an investor. Ounce per ounce, who's the best investor, which is different than the best CEO? Who's the best investor or the best two or three investors you've ever come across? I mean... If you had to put the Sorkin family fortune in someone's hands, who, whose hands are we putting it in? I'd say I'd say Stan Druckenmiller, though he missed the bottom of this this most recent uh, COVID uh, piece. I think you'd give him some of your money. I I have no problem. Obviously, if you could give Warren Buffett some of your money, I'd still give it. I know people uh, think that he, he hasn't necessarily hit it out of the park in this regard right now, but he's hit it out of the park over his life and deserves all the acclaim he's gotten. Who else? You know who's done very, very well um, is Dan Loeb. 
Dan Loeb has done a tremendous job over the last 20 years. If you just go look at the returns, there's, you know, those, those are real returns. So I'm trying to think who else would you really, who you'd give your money, just hand the money over to and close your eyes, right? That's the question. Who do you hand the money to? Yeah, the, and, 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 and guttural all, almost, like literally from the gut. Like if like you had to make a snap decision, like someone was coming for you and you had to wire, you had to push the button. I'm going to be gone for several years. Here's who I'm sending the, the Sorkin family fortune to. Yeah, so the people I just named, I'm hoping are going to get returns. Um, I'm a conservative guy, so I probably give it to one of my best friends or my dad and just say, don't lose it. <laughs> I like that. Okay, I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that all the way. Um, all right, I'm going to bring you down the home stretch here. You know, one of the things that we're talking about on the show all the time is how people go about dreaming fearlessly, and not only dream fearlessly, but actually realize those dreams. Go back and, and talk to a younger Andrew or even some of his friends. Like, what have you learned? What has surprised you about how to dream fearlessly and bring those dreams to life? Okay, so a couple of things. First is passion matters so much more than talent. So much more than talent. I remember being in junior high and high school and sitting next to kids who got straight A's. I was not a, a straight, a, straight A kid at all. And the distinction between, when I look at the people who've really shot the moon, it's the people who had the passion, the love for what they were doing. It wasn't necessarily that they were the most talented person in the room or got the best grades. So I think, again, if you can figure out the passion piece of it, which is very hard for, for a lot of people, and I always wonder, is it something that you're just born with and happens magically or not? Um, and if so, then, then I really am blessed. So I think that matters. Two, persistence. Persistence matters more than talent. I remember, at least in my career, it's always been the person who works the hardest, works the phones the most, reaches out to as many people as they possibly can. Nobody really wants to say no to people. People, people hate saying no. They want to say yes. They do. I think that's part of the human spirit, or at least I hope it is. And so I think if you try and you can show people that you care, there's so much value to that. And... And I also think in terms of just thinking big, that at least for me, I don't know if I've thought big, but I think I, I think setting a target for yourself is important. I think, I think uh, being able to actualize or self-actualize what you, what you want to happen, actually there's value to that. And I know for many years I said to myself, I got to figure out a way to write a book. I got to figure out a way to make a, and then after that I thought, oh, I got to figure out a way to make a TV show. And it might take years. You know, billions, I started thinking about that in 2010. I don't think it was on the air till 2016. Um, you know, there's so many projects and things that may take a long, long time. Um, many, many years ago, I told myself that I should I should try. You, you, you probably make lists of people you'd love to interview. And I remember thinking, I'd love to interview the Pope. Why not go for gold? Why not go for the top? It probably took, I interviewed him last, last, uh, last fall. It probably took me many, many years to figure out how I was going to make that happen. But I, I think setting goals, and maybe they can be realistic, maybe they can't be realistic. Sometimes I'll set goals that I'll never reach, but I think it's worth it. I think it's worth trying. I, I love that. In fact, that actually ties to kind of a cousin question that I think a lot about, which is for many people, change happens to you. Um, and you're not always the change agent. 
What other advice do you have for people who want to be a change agent, who don't just want to wait and hope and see if it happens? Like, what else would you say to them about how to actually be that 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 effective change agent? Well, so I don't know. It's something I do. I don't know if it's the right way to do it. I think a lot of us can get into what I call like a responsive mode. You know, you get emails in the morning, you know, two things happen. You have a calendar of things that are supposed to happen that you want to happen. And then on the other side, you get emails, you get an inbox. A lot of people spend their day trying to get to zero on the inbox, trying to just respond to the incoming. I really think you got to look at the calendar because that's, that's the calendar is what you're, what you set up and don't just accept an invitation, by the way, you should be getting other people to accept your invitation because it's what you need and what you want. Um, I still think you got to be responsive, by the way. I, I actually try to answer as much as I can of the email. But, but I do think you have to try to prioritize things because the whole world's coming so fast and with social media and all the crazy things that people are up to, you can get lost in it. And um, you asked me what my wife would say. I get, she'll tell you that I get lost in this uh, you know, Twitter tunnel or I get lost in these, these crazy places. And I try desperately to snap out of it. So I would say snap out of it, focus on the stuff that actually matters and try to sort through the rest of it. Hey, hey finally, give me 30 seconds on Deal Book. Um, I've loved it for years, but for those who don't know, if, if you can, tell me quickly how it started, but maybe more importantly, why are you still at it with such love almost 20 years later? So this was this was maybe this was sort of my version of maybe being a, a media entrepreneur. In 2001, I was working at the New York Times, and I had this idea to start a newsletter, or a, and this was almost like a blog before there were blogs, and it was about the world of Wall Street and mergers and finance. And over the years, we now have 700,000 subscribers, and it's become its own franchise. But we've really tried to connect the dots between policy and business, and you know, so much of that. You know, policy oftentimes is, is in one sort of silo, business, maybe in a different silo, tech, pharma, banking, they all maybe in their own silos. And what we try to do is connect the dots. And the relationship with the, with the reader is extraordinary. Many of the people that I've had the opportunity to interview were actually subscribers. Uh, you know, we talk about these titans, they subscribed to the email many, many years ago and, and they reply to it in the morning which is a crazy thing. So it was almost like the earliest version of a really interactive relationship in the form of email. And I love doing it. We have an amazing team uh, at the New York Times and coming up next year will be 20 years, 20 years do, do, doing this thing. So uh, we do a conference, we do an event. I, I've yeah. always loved it and said, if I was a Salzburger, I would actually have broken it off on its own. I think as successful as it's been within the family, I think what you've done there, what they did on the style section there, I thought was also kind of magical, that those actually, in a weird way, could have done even better uh, set out on their own. That's how special I thought uh, what you guys what you guys have built there. Well, I appreciate that. I, I will say I love the New York Times as a platform, and I think we have benefited by being uh, part of that family. Um, in very many ways. I know you probably expect, you get your salt shaker out and say, I can't believe you just said that, but uh, I feel that way. Yeah, well, you know, I, I love uh, your new CEO, have, have loved her for a long time. And so you guys Meredith. keep going from Meredith strength to doing, strength. Doing great so. things. She's done great things, she'll do even greater things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hey, Andrew Ross Larkin, uh, promise me this won't be the last time. 
We'll do it again. Look, I'm looking forward to this. Hopefully in person. Can we do it in person? In person would be good. In person would be good. Um, we actually have to get you out to California. You know I'm going to get you at Aussie Fest eventually. Either yeah, I know. Either Central Park or you know that we're going to do it in Golden Gate Park uh, next year. A hundred percent. Can we do an elbow bump? I, I, we'll do an elbow bump. Got you. I got you. Uh, gracias and thank you. Thank you. Okay. I'll see you soon. See you soon. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to the Carlos Watson Show podcast. If you enjoyed the conversation, please tell your friends. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hi, I'm John O'Brien, host of Money and Wealth on the Black Effect Podcast Network. I'm an entrepreneur and a businessman. Now, every Thursday, my newest venture is educating you on how to win financially. Even better, I'm going to teach it in a way that, well, you can understand. I'm going to meet you where you are and take you where you need to be. We all might have different starting points and end goals, but as long as we have the desire to acquire financial freedom, it can be done. Listen to Money and Wealth with John Hope Bryant every Thursday on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, what's up? This is your boy, Jerry Clark, and I am the host of Storytime with Legendary Jerry Podcast. For the last 30 years, I have worked with some of your favorite artists, like Outkast, Killer Mike, Jeezy, Akon, Jermaine Dupree, and so many, many more. Storytime with Legendary Jerry is an ode to the South. Southern rap has had the game on lock for years. And now I'm telling you legendary stories of how we did it. Listen to Storytime with Legendary Jerry on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.